0: Good morning, dear brothers and sisters, as we gather together as God's people here today. It is a privilege to be with you and to speak here at Crown Point and today to speak to our Gary campus, which I will be burning rubber up to here in a little bit. Speaking of burning rubber, I drive a car, you likely drive some similar form of vehicle, and I get in it, I turn it on, I shift it into gear, it goes down the road. Accomplishment, I know. If I was to ask you, how does your car go down the road? Most of you would probably say, well, I turn the key on, I put it in gear, I push the accelerator, it goes down the road. And there are... Millions of people around the world, maybe hundreds of millions of people around the world, that's what they do every day. And that is pretty much the extent of their understanding of how the car goes down the road. Now, if you were to talk to a a car geek, car mechanic, engineer at uh, at General Motors, uh, you would get a different answer about how a car goes down the road. You would likely get all kinds of uh, explanations about combustion and gears and uh, the development of the car and all the things now that the modern car does to make it go down the road. My dad was 40 years engineer for John Deere and the last portion of his career he was the lead engineer for the number one engine John Deere has all over the world. Now, we drive by and, you know, maybe your kids, my kids go, tractor, you know, or John Deere. And uh, it goes down the field. If you were to ask my dad, how, how does a tractor go down the field? He would give you things that would make your head spin about all the engineering that makes a tractor go down the road. Most of us, though, are just simply glad that tractors go down the field and our cars go down the road. How God makes sinners righteous before him and how God turns sinners into eternal saints is a lot like your car going down the road. There's a minimum that you need to know and to understand and to believe for you to be in the gospel car and for your car to be heading towards heaven. And a good summary of that minimum would be just John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You know that, you believe that in a biblical way, and you are under the grace of God. You are saved. And there are millions of people that will be in heaven uh, forever who that was mostly the depth of their understanding. You think of the thief on the cross as a good example of that sort of bare minimum understanding and yet genuine trusting faith. So if that's you, hey, great, that's great. Praise God, it will get you to heaven. But if you really want to drive a car, like if you really want to push that car to maximum performance and experience that that car can provide, you have to know how the car works. And that's why the race car drivers and the others, they know every, you know, every little detail of that car, that's why the pilots check the planes before you get on, and aren't we glad for that? They know how the car works. They know how the plane works. And similarly, when it comes to salvation, brothers and sisters, if we want to have the maximum experience of God's grace in this life, if we, if we want to experience the, to the maximum the assurance of the promises of God, we have to get down under the hood, get down into the engineering of the gospel car, to understand how God did it and how God does it. And just like a GM engineer can make our, our heads spin with all the engineering that goes into a car, should we be that surprised if we look into, under the hood of God's gospel car to find out that in the infinite mind of God, there are some things about how God takes sinners to heaven that makes our heads spin? And that are hard to understand with our finite minds. And this is what we have here before us and really for the next two chapters in Romans. We're in Romans 8. Because Romans 8 opens the hood, takes us down into some of the engineering of how God accomplished our salvation. And there are hard things in this. There are things that are a little difficult to get our minds wrapped around. But in the end, here's what we know, is that the promise of God and the work of God through his son Jesus will take sinners to heaven who trust and believe in him. And so we are in the section, now we're in, in Romans 8, uh, verse 30 today, and uh, it's part of a paragraph that we've been going through super slow, and I hope you haven't mind, in a way I don't care, because this is, this is as good as it gets. And we are, we are going to savor verse 30, but let me read the whole paragraph, here's what it says. May God bless his word to his people today. You'll notice, if you have a Bible, you'll notice that this is really a section here that began in verse 18 with the thought that Paul introduces that in the Christian life, just like in the life of Jesus, it's suffering now, glory to come. And that the glory that is to come is so great that it makes all of the present day sufferings so worth it, so worth it. It reaches its crescendo in verse 28 that if we are God's people, all things work together for good. Now you may say, well, what good are you talking about? Well, the good that we find right here in the text is uh, the flow of the good in verse 28, is the conforming to Jesus in verse 29, and the glorified in verse 30. These are all part of the same promise that God is giving to us, that the sovereign God is working good For all of those who, verse 28, are called according to his purpose. And the passage today, verse 30, is a kind of summary from the apostle of how God does it. How does God take a rebellious sinner, forgive all his sins, place him in a situation of grace, declare him righteous, and ultimately land him in heaven and someday on the new earth in a resurrected body? I say that takes a little bit of engineering, don't you think? And indeed it does. And so the end game in this is glorification. The starting point is predestination, and in between we have calling and justification. Now if you look at verse 30, you look at that list, you're like, hey, aren't there a lot of things missing in here? Important things like regeneration, or union with Christ, or adoption, Or sanctification and maybe some other things you'd want to throw in there that are important things that God does to save us? Yes, we would say that. But that's why we know this is a kind of, it's a flyby. This is the highlights, the primary works of God to secure our final and eternal salvation. So again the verse. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now you don't have to be very smart to understand uh, the outline today because Paul pretty much just lays out the four part outline of verse 30. Notice he begins, those whom he predestined. He predestined. We talked about predestination last week. This is one of these tough ones to get our minds around. And we talked about the fact that this is a Bible word, and so the the people that somehow try to pretend that they don't believe in predestination, it really is a biblically ignorant position because predestination is found throughout the Bible. So it's not so much whether you believe in predestination or not, it's how you define it that the challenge comes. And so the word means this, it means what it says, pre, which is before, beforehand, destinate, or destination. Destination. It is a beforehand-determined destination, in this case, heaven or hell. And I said last week, and if you notice that I dodged it a little bit, and that was intentional, and I'm going to dodge it again today, Romans 9, we're going to get into all this stuff, okay? And I don't want to get into all the questions, a few emails came in, you know, many more probably to come about what does all this mean, just hang in there, okay? Stay tuned, we'll get to it. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm only temporarily dodging it. But I want you to notice that it begins with predestined. And notice the tense. In fact, if there's something important in the message today, you got to get the tenses of these verbs. Because it's the whole point. Okay, What tense is predestined? It is in the past tense. Right? You with me? Okay, past tense. Past tense. Predestination is something God did long ago. How long ago did God do it? Here's Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Okay now so there's there's past tense and then there's way past tense. <laughs> and when you start talking about it says here before the foundations of the world he chose us. That's like that's pre-creation. That's pre-angels, that's pre-everything except God, way back before there was anything other than God. Back then, he predestined us. So it is past tense, it is way past tense. And we put that in the grouping along with election and foreknowledge, and we see that the activities of God to save us, the, the beginning of God looking at us in a loving and a saving way did not start when you started going to church. It did not start when your grandma started praying for you. It did not start when you sort of felt bad about that thing you did. God's beginning love for his people was before we ever existed, or anything existed. That's how much he's loved us. And oh, we're gonna get into that in Romans 9, the electing love of God. He loves you, friend, way more than you begin to realize, and he has for a very long time long time so past tense who did it he okay he where in this is me second second he called okay he called and those whom he predestined he also called and we talked briefly about this in Romans eight twenty eight because it says that we're called according to his purpose a little bit more time on it now and this is confusing because the word call is used in the Bible in, in really two different ways. You have God and Jesus often in his ministry offering what we call a general call to humanity. Come unto me, all who, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Whosoever believes in the name of the Lord will be saved. Things like this where there is a general call, a general offer that God makes to everybody. Come and believe. Jesus is the savior of the world, etc. So to be clear, the gospel is offered to everyone, and that includes, by the way, everybody here today. If you hear something today and you're like, you know what, I need that, great. God might be calling you in the secondary sort of way that this word is used, and this is what it's meant here. Not just the general call of God, but the specific call of God, or what sometimes they call the effectual call of God, This is the summoning call of God to the sinner's heart, which moves and inclines the sinner's heart through, we add, regeneration, to trust and believe in Jesus. Now, why would that be necessary? And here's where our anthropology, our doctrine of man is so important, is that we are not born with sort of this predisposition to trusting and believing in Jesus and following Jesus with our life. No, we are born spiritually dead. We are dead. I told you the story of uh, Dr. Lutzer who wanted to teach his homiletics uh, students how to what it's like to preach and he took them to the cemetery and he said, everybody come, I want you to have a sermon prepared and they went to a local cemetery he said, all right, pick, pick a grave and get preaching. <laughs> and they actually had to do it. They preached their sermon to the grave in the cemetery. They got back in the van and of course he says, what's the point? And the point is, is that, The declaration of the gospel to spiritually dead people without the grace of God working in their life, or in this case, the call of God in their life, will have no effect. Those people in the grave had no, there was no like, oh, I'm stirring a little bit here because I'm a little bit alive. No, they're dead. They cannot respond to the gospel. And spiritually, the same thing is true. Apart from the grace of God and the work of the Spirit of God through the gospel of God, None of us would believe. And that is why we come to church not proud or look at me like we're a club. We are astounded at the grace of God. And it humbles us to realize that were it not for the grace of God working in my heart and in, in life, I would never trust and believe in Jesus. And so who gets the praise for that? He does. It's almost as if he engineered it that way. I think about... An example of this would be Jesus at the grave of Lazarus. What is a summoning call? It's like what Jesus did at the grave of Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. He's been dead for days. Jesus stands at that grave and shouts to him, Lazarus, come forth. What happened? If you know the story, Lazarus comes out. He's still got the grave clothes around him. What was it? It was the summoning call of God. And this is something to know about God that is way different than you and me. When God calls, when God speaks, when God wills, the will and the call create the very thing that's desired. He said there was there was nothing and he said let there be light. And guess what? There was light. Why? Cuz that's the way that God works. When you're almighty God, you don't hope something's going to happen. You don't sort of plan and and have sort of the, the, the inward desire. You know it's going to happen. Why? Because you are God. You speak, and what you speak happens. I read a true story, apparently, of a Hindu leader who announced that he was going to, on this specific date, walk on water. And so everybody was, of course, wanting to see the spectacle, and so a huge crowd gathered at the edge of the river, and uh, out came the Hindu leader, and he went to the edge of the water and very dramatically stepped in, only to plunge completely over his head. He came out sputtering and struggling, and he shouted to the crowd, One of you is an unbeliever! Our words do not create the supernatural. You can go try that tonight if you want. Just say something that would require supernatural something and wait and see what happens. Nothing happens. But when you're God, you say to the storm, peace be still. You say to the abyss, let there be light. You say to the dead man, come forth. And the power of God creates what is called It summons into reality the very thing that is purposed. Here's 1 Corinthians 1 about the call of God. Paul writes, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, do you see that? So the first part of the verse is the general call we preach to everybody, Jews, Gentiles, we proclaim Jesus But to those who are called, what happens to that message? Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So that right now, I can declare over this room that if you trust and believe in Jesus, you will be saved. And I can say that full-heartedly. I believe that with all my heart. But me saying that doesn't create the faith in the heart. It doesn't incline anybody in this room to trust and believe in Jesus. But if you are called by God and you hear the gospel, that call and that summon creates in your heart the very thing that is required, which is faith and a trust and a leaning and a believing on Jesus. God is the one who calls. And so it says here, those God predestined, he also called. There's a pattern here, and you'll see it rest of the verse, okay? A pattern. Each activity of God is indestructibly linked to the next here. And that is why this verse is known as the golden chain of salvation. The golden chain of salvation. Those he predestined, he also called. Now notice with me, what tense is call in? Past tense. Who did it? He. Where in this is me? The verse goes on, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. He justified. And here now, we're on a word that, if you've been coming to our church and you don't get this word, it's not my fault, okay? It's not my fault. How many times have we been talking about justification in the book of Romans? Romans. And we've talked about this wonderful doctrine, where this truth, where where justification is God declaring a sinner to essentially not be a sinner. You are not a sinner, you are righteous. In the eyes of God, I am looking at you forensically, legally, you are righteous. And I promise I am going to treat you as if you are as righteous as my son Jesus forever and ever, time without end. Now, the kicker with justification is, are we actually righteous in our, like, truly in our life? No, we're not. This is God declaring us to be something forever that we are not. How could he do that? That doesn't seem right. If a judge did that and said, oh, well, I know you're you're, uh, guilty, but I'm going to declare you innocent, we'd say you're a terrible judge. But here now in justification, what have we learned? This is where the cross of Jesus is the basis by which God can declare us righteous by imputing to us the righteousness of Jesus and declare Jesus, who was actually the righteous one, not righteous, by imputing all of our sin and guilt to him. So when he died on that cross, he died in our place for our sin, for our guilt, making a way that God can make us righteous forever, even though we're not. Which, again, should humble us. And to realize, what did I do for this? I did nothing. The only thing we contributed to this whole thing is our sin. Congratulations. Here in eight thirty, we see the link to calling and predestination. Those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. What we see here is that everybody that he predestined, he justified. Like, you don't have some people he predestined, but they didn't quite make it to the justification stage. We don't have people that were justified that somehow were missed in God's pre planning and purposing in the predestination. You don't have these sort of outliers out here who didn't seem to get with the program. No, everybody he predestined, he called. Everybody he called, he justified. Not one person lost. What tense is it, by the way? Past tense. Who did it? He. Where in this is me? And now the fourth. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He glorified. Of all the words in this verse, in fact, in some ways, I could say this might be the most shocking word in Romans. He glorified. Why is this a shock? Well, glorification in the Bible is the word that is used, it's a summary word for all the future things that God is going to do for us. So this includes, you know, our, our, uh, our, our, our life when we die. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This includes Uh, our resurrection from the dead at the return of Jesus. This includes our resurrected body, this glorified body that we get to live in forever. This includes the whole experience of heaven and the new earth and all the marriage supper of the Lamb and put all of that under glorification. A summary word. All the wonder and blessing that awaits us. It's, It's all future. And here's the kicker. What tense is glorified past tense past tense I mean you would read this and this is what you would expect it to say you would think that what he he meant to say maybe it's a typo something's not quite right you would expect him to say and those whom he justified he also will glorify right like, someday, that's going to happen, because all of that is yet future, and yet here, it is past tense. How can a future promise be described in a past tense? I remember many years ago, I was doing a wedding. The wedding is literally, it's, it's basically started. They've sat the grandparents, they've sat the parents. I'm in the back, you know, I'm peeking through a little door, it's not in this facility, I peek through a little door and I'm I'm watching because the bridesmaids are coming down and it's about the moment when I'm going to walk out with the groomsmen and the groom. And I'm looking out the door like this and the groom whispers in my ear at that moment. Just so you know, we got married 3 months ago. <laughs> da dum da dum da I walked out on that stage, the groom right behind me, the groomsmen, my head is spinning. I'm like, (laughs) I didn't know what to do. How do I pretend that we're talking about them getting married when they've already been married for three months? Single people, do not do this to the preacher, okay? (laughs) This is not a kind thing. I just sort of said, okay, God, this, I've just given this one to you, and I'm just going to roll with it, and, and uh, so anyway. But it gets at the point here, okay? Here's the point. There is a grammatical tense that is known as the prophetic future tense. You don't need to remember that. But I'm telling you, it's the prophetic future tense. And what the prophetic future tense is, it is a tense that is used to describe something that in the future is so certain that you talk about it like it's a past event. Now, you actually know the prophetic future. Um, The bully on the playground, who looks at you, you're you're the next victim, and he says, you are dead meat. (laughs) Is employing, unbeknownst to him, the prophetic future tense? (laughs) I am so confident that I am going to wipe you out, that I am speaking of you as if it's already happened. Larry Bird famously walked into the All-Star locker room right before the three-point shootout contest and told his competitors, you guys are fighting for second. (laughs) Speaking of a future reality as if it has already happened. Now, why is this so important, and why is it honestly so wonderful? Because Romans 8, verse 30, our salvation from first to last, from predestination to glorification, is so certain to be accomplished that God describes it in the past tense. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, who can say that kind of thing? Because back to the bully in the playground. Does the bully know that the skinny kid he's about to pick a fight with isn't a third-degree black belt? Does he know that? No. So it's possible that this isn't going to work out the way that he thought. Did Larry Bird know that he was going to win the three-point shootout contest, which he actually did? No, he didn't know that. And that's the world that you and I live in. We can make our plans. We can set our calendars. We can can hope to graduate from college. We can hope to have a family. We can desire to have this and that. We can make our plans. We can pretend like it's actually going to happen. But in reality, as a human being, we don't know what's going to happen on the way home today. We don't know what's going to happen in the next second. I don't know that I have a breath in the next second. Who can say something so outlandish to describe the future eternity in the past tense? God can. God can do that. And that's exactly what he does here. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. There is no circumstance that is going to overwhelm his purpose and plan. There is nobody that's going to come rolling into town that's going to thwart what he has planned and purposed for those that he has loved from before the world began friend do you see this christian before the world began he started loving you and purposed that you it's it's not it it's whom whom it's a person he knows us as people and from way back there he began to think about you in a loving saving relationship and all the things that he did throughout the Bible, specifically in the cross of Jesus and the resurrection, part and parcel of his purpose and plan to glorify every single one that he predestined way back then. Not one is going to be lost. There, isn't, there aren't outliers or anything. No, there is nobody that can thwart the purpose of God. And if you are under the grace of God, I'm here to tell you, you will be glorified. It's so certain, you might as well talk about it as a done deal. Those he justified, he also glorified. So what's the point? Everything about our salvation is grounded in the character and the eternal purpose of God. And we can join God's certainty that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Predestination. Are saved. Justification. Will be saved. Glorification. It's heading into the greatest section on assurance of God's eternal love for us in the whole Bible. It begins next week with, if God is for us. Who can be against us? That's next week, I hope you'll come. All right friend, now, I, that's a wonderful point. But my main point today is I want you to see who is the repeated doer of each of these things. What is the repetition over and over again? He, do you see that? He, the beginning, was God. The end is God. And all of it is somehow working together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We find here then that God's purpose is unchangeable, it is unalterable, it is undeniable, it is invincible. And therefore, our salvation and our assurance of our salvation is unable by any power in heaven or earth to be dissuaded, dissolved, or defeated. Now, I need a little help right now. Okay, I need a little help. I need to find out who in the room, and sorry, balcony people, it just takes you too long to get down here. So, on the floor here, who, is, who would, by appearance, and this is subjective, I need the strongest man in the room. Okay, so look around. I'm I'm looking for nominations. Is there anybody around you that you would say might be that strongest guy in the room? I'm not getting any help. Can you somebody point? Okay, one wife's pointing to her husband. That's so sweet. <laughs> that is so, so sweet. But we got somebody's getting pointed to right here. Is there a strong man? Okay. In the front, over here. Who's Josh? Right here? I'll take you, you're close. Come on up. All right, I need, a, I need a second and third place. Second and third place. Mark, I'll take you, come on up. I, I, you, you, you appear to work out to me. All right, all right, let's see here. Okay, whoever's being pointed to right there, would you come up as well? Actually, don't come on the stage. You just sit on the stairs here, if you would. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure what to say to this. You can just, you can just sit right there. You can sit right there. refrain from any joking because there's a point I want to make here okay so you were nominated as the biggest strongest guy in the room okay all right so I have a chain here okay I have a chain I'm going to ask the strongest man in the room to break it see if you can just go ahead and oh all right congratulations thank you for that thank you all right, uh, come over here a second. So we have a man in our church that actually manages the, um, the docks and the unloading at the uh, port up on Lake Michigan. Months ago, knowing I was going to preach this passage, I asked him, can you get me the biggest chain from those Great Lakes iron ore shipping things that we reasonably could get into the church? And so this box right here is that, all right? So come on on over here a second, all right? I want you to lift that up. Not the box, but the chain. Go ahead and reach in there. You're kind of dressed up nice, all right? Okay. All right. Go ahead, let's see it. Oh, you need help? That's why I've got these guys here. Come on up here, guys. All right. Okay, all right. All right, just give it a go. I don't know, just, just yeah, it's, it, it, it doesn't seem to be even, it's not even trying there yet, is it? Really, too much, okay. So, now the balcony guys are like, I could do it. But, uh, all right, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sure. All right, you all get the point, right? Okay, thank you, you may be seated. All right, appreciate that. Give him a hand. Okay. Here's what I'm trying to say because I think this is what the passage says today. I think many of our people are living small chain Christianity. You're fearful, you're worried Things in your life are such that you, it feels very tenuous, very fragile. Worry and fear dominate your life. You don't know what the future holds, and you're going to live in a constant state of anxiety, worried and wondering what lies ahead. You're living small chain Christianity. When God wants us to be living Great Lakes shipping, <laughs> I'll put it down again. All right. <laughs> I'll just point to it. God wants you living iron ore ship change, chain living. He wants you to understand. That everything he has been doing, he's not trying to do. You don't try to do anything when you're God. You do it. You do it. And everybody that he predestined, there's the link of the chain, the the purpose of God and predestination. He also called, worked in your life and your heart to draw you to trust and believe. Second link, indissolvably second link. Which leads the calling of God to God declaring you righteous forever, never holding a sin against you again. Promises he never will. There's the other link in that chain. And his future for his people, his children, far beyond anything we can imagine, is so certain in the purpose of eternal God that he wants us to view it as a done deal. A done deal. What are you thinking about as you live your life in the anxieties and the fears, the burdens of your heart, the loss, the past pain of your life, the bitterness that's dominated your life? What about the future and the uncertainties and your kids and the this and the that, all these things? Friend, what should you be thinking about as you lay on your deathbed? If I come see you, I might just bring this chain to remind you that from first to last, your salvation is secure in the eternal purposes and character of God. In fact, that's the focus because what is the repeated word other than those? He, 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 Who is doing all of this? It is God. And some people come to salvation, they want to insist, no, I've got to be in there somewhere. There's got to be a little bit of me in there somewhere. And yet there is no me, it's all he. Which got me thinking. And I penned a little summary, a little poetic reflection on this that I'd like to share with you. Romans 8 verse 30. I started my journey very much about me. But the gospel made me ask, how did I come to see? The glory of he dying for me on that tree. Surely I would not see if it were not for he. I looked to the cross to see more of me. But all I could see was the sacrifice of he. I looked to my faith as coming from me. But me wouldn't believe was only from he surely my walk and where it goes is me but looking back I see each step was from he what of my future can its destiny be of me yet I'm only today there in the future is he he or me more I see it's not me for how would me be if it were not for he And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also glorified, justified. And those whom he justified, praise God, he also glorified.